Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about infertility and adoption. On today's show, we're going to be talking about the very important topic of understanding and coming to terms with the pain of infertility. I'm Dawn Davenport. I'm the director of Creating a Family. We are the National Infertility and Adoption Education and Support Nonprofit. You can find us online at creatingafamily.org. We are a weekly radio show, and we use the podcast model. That way you can listen whenever and wherever you want. It also means that you can subscribe to receive notice of the upcoming week's topic. Uh, And to subscribe, you can go to whatever app you're using to listen to this and uh, and just click in the names, or actually, if you're listening to it, just click the subscribe button. Uh, if uh, you are listening through your computer and want to know what the big deal about subscribing is and downloading is, go to your smartphone. And if it's a, um, a relatively new iPhone, there will be an app already installed, the Apple Podcasting app. Uh, go there, type in the words creating a family. We pop up and click subscribe. Uh, and if you're using an Android, there are literally hundreds of really good uh, podcast uh, apps that you can use. Go to the Google Play Store, type in uh, podcasting app, and uh, you'll see lots and check out the reviews. And do the same there. It is super easy. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. For many patients, cost can be a barrier to pursuing fertility treatment. That's why Faring's offering a savings card for their endometrin vaginal inserts. This instant savings card offers up to $100 savings each month on your endometrin prescription for eligible patients. To get more information, talk to your doctor. Uh, This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support from our gold sponsors who believe in our mission of providing unbiased education and support to those struggling to create a family. Some of our wonderful gold sponsors include Fairfax Cryobank. They have been a leader in sperm donation for over 25 years and are dedicated to supplying updated, verified, and accurate medical and personal information on their donors. We also have Nightlight Christian Adoptions. They are a pioneer in offering embryo donation and adoption services to clients throughout the world through their Snowflakes Embryo Adoption Program. And we have the law offices of James Fletcher Thompson. They are a South Carolina firm committed to adoption and assisted reproductive law, including providing gestational surrogacy matching programs as well as legal services for independent surrogacy, egg donation, and embryo donation matters. And we have Reproductive Medicine Associates of New Jersey. They are a recognized scientific and patient care leader in the field of infertility with 10 offices and 21 physicians throughout New Jersey. 
Fairfax Crybank. They have been a leader in sperm donation for over 25 years and are dedicated to supplying updated, verified, and accurate medical and personal information on their donors. I think I've already done them, so hey, they get a twofer today uh, since I can't read my notes. As I mentioned, on today's show, we're going to be talking about the topic, understanding and coming to terms with the pain of infertility. You know, in many ways, the grief of infertility is different from other pains, other griefs. And in, and in some ways, these differences make it harder to cope. Uh, and, and I think it is so important for those uh, suffering from infertility to understand something about the nature of this pain and why it's harder to resolve. Our guest today to talk about this really important topic is Dr. Ken Doka. He is a professor at the College of New Rochelle. He is a senior consultant to the Hospice Foundation of America, and he is the author of Disenfranchised Grief, of which, I might add, disenfranchised grief is the term that's used to describe griefs like uh, the grief of inability to conceive. We also have Chris Fassi. She is the Director of Adoption for Bethany Christian Services. And Beth and, and Chris has had many years of experience counseling pre- and post-adoptive parents dealing with infertility grief as well as miscarriage. And she has spent a great deal of her professional life thinking and, and discussing the topics of grief and how it impacts people who are struggling to conceive. This show was recorded uh, several years ago, but it has remained one of our most popular uh, for good reason. It's uh, partly because of the strength of the guest, uh, as well as it's a topic that is so seldom discussed, uh, the nature of the grief and understanding it, that I think you will really enjoy it. Welcome, Dr. Doka and Chris Fassi, to Creating a Family. Thank you very much. Thank you, Don. I am really looking forward to this show, uh, Dr. Doka. I have read a lot of your stuff and have been a uh, and have been a fan. So this is a real treat for me. In fact, uh, Chris and I have have talked before about your work. So uh, I think it's maybe a, a treat for both of us. Um, you refer to well, infertility. Well, I'm honored to be on. <laughs> Thanks. You refer to infertility grief as disenfranchised grief. What do you mean by that term? Well, the term disenfranchised grief really refers to losses um, that others don't acknowledge. So you have a loss, but um, others don't acknowledge that grief. It, it's really not expressed. Um, fundamentally, what it means is you do not have a right to grieve that loss. Yeah. Yeah, that is such a, uh, that is such a issue uh, with infertility is people's inability or, or feeling that they don't have the, have the, uh, have the right to mourn. Um, I've also heard the term ambiguous loss used to describe infertility grief. Is that something different? It's, it's slightly different. It's a term by Pauline Boss, a very interesting, a very good term, um, written in her book um, uh, ambiguous, entitled Ambiguous Loss. And what uh, Dr. Boss is talking about there are losses that are um, – that others are not really sure whether you've had a loss or not. And certainly infertility would fit into that as well. So, for example, the classic example of ambiguous loss would be if somebody has uh, someone they love go missing. So you don't know if they're alive, if they're dead, if they've run away, if they're in trouble. Um, um, you know, you don't really know what's going on. But in some ways, infertility can also be an ambiguous loss because um, some people may feel it, it's just your lifestyle choice and, 
um, you know, and they may not be aware of the efforts you're making to to start a family. Well, there's something also too that that that's about infertility, is that you're grieving a dream, not the reality, and and that makes it so hard to to deal with, both personally, as well as for society to deal with. So how does that fit yeah. in the idea that it's your dream, your dream that you've had that's not not coming to fruition? Yeah, and, and I, you know, and I think that it's it's one of the hidden losses of adulthood, because you know often the markers when we meet other adults are often you know, uh, you know, do you have kids? What what age are the kids? And um, and you know, and and that's one of the ways we connect with people. I often say that job loss and infertility are are two of the real significant losses because they're both markers in conversations. Oh wow, that is so true. And so that means it comes up all the time because when people meet, you meet somebody for the first time, you're just trying to establish a connection, trying to figure out where you fit and where they fit in the conversation. So you often will say, what do you do? Or do you have children? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah so so it's it's almost as if an added whammy to not only do you not have the ability to mourn it, and not only do or the the right to mourn it, uh, and and, not, and and that it's not even a loss that's necessarily recognized. It's also a loss that is brought up just as part of standard conversation. I like that as a marker in conversation. So that that just what what's a standard thing that we do highlights. This grief. Oh, it's like it's a triple whammy, I guess, then, so to speak. Yeah, you? yeah, and 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 sometimes even a quadruple one because you know cultures differ, and and you know, but in some cultures, you're really um, expected to have children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and so yeah, and, yeah. You know, you know, be fruitful and multiply, and if you're. Um, you know, and if you if you don't have children, that you know that in in some cultures that also creates a sort of cultural sanction. Yeah, well, and that's not just abroad. I think there are uh, familial cultures who also you don't really enter into adulthood until you become a parent in in your parents' mind or in your grandparents' mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you're right. It makes it, and then to throw that on top, uh, and then it makes it even all the more. If, if no people don't even recognize it as a loss, uh, then then you're then you're really struggling to cope because you have no no support. What is it from? And, and you've done so much research in general on grief. Uh, what is it about the ability to mourn that helps us resolve our grief, or does it? Well, you know, I, I think um, resolve is probably not one of my favorite words here. Because, no, I'm um, actually. I hate the word. <laughs> yeah, because I think, you know, I think you live with loss, and I think it it peaks at different points. So, for example, you know, um, um, you know, when my, my grandchild was born, uh, one of the things that I missed was being able to, to share that with my dad, who had died a little bit prior to that. You know, so we live with losses. And he had died actually many years before, but I'm just saying that, you know, we live with with loss. Um, we don't necessarily resolve it, but I think that support, you know, gives us an opportunity to uh, to address our losses, to to share our losses with other people, and for a lot of people, that kind of support, um, just the validation that, you know, yeah, this is a tough loss, and yeah, you're going through a hard time. Um, can be very important. 
Is there something with the, if I think about our morning rituals that we have, and I think all cultures and all families have morning rituals, it seems to me that one of the purposes of the morning ritual is to bring solace to the people who are mourning. Is there something about mourning communally that is helpful? Oh, I, 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 I think definitely so. I mean, I think you look at it, you know, historically, and, um, you know, the what we see, um, well predating our ability to write about it, was we see, um, you know, we see in various... Um, in, in Neolithic humans, um, we see that they took great care uh, to follow certain kinds of rituals, to uh, to have ways to to publicly mourn. Um, you know, they returned to the same places. We we see by how they buried people that they uh, that certain objects were you know were ritualistically placed you know placed with the person. So you know, we we see uh, Lewis Mumford says that cemeteries. Um, are the first permanent human settlements, um, and and he's right on that. You know uh, that uh, that we see that. So yeah, I think we've always found solace um, in mourning with others. And and with losses that you've studied, such as infertility, is that a is is the inability to communally grieve. A uh, is that a hindrance to people living with their loss? I think whenever we see any form of disenfranchised grief, where there's not support, there's not validation, there's not ritual, there's not acknowledgement. Um, I think it does complicate the grieving process. Okay, that's so. That yeah, I think so. Uh, Chris, I am going to be getting to you. We are going to be uh, uh, shifting the discussion in just a bit to talking about the how infertility interferes with adoption, and we've got a number of questions that I, I want to, from both our audience and from me. But before we get to that, I wanted to read a. I wanted to just focus a little more on exclusively the infertility loss with you, Dr. Doka. We received okay. a, an email question from Bethany, and she said. We haven't shared our infertility with many people because we are private people and also because we don't think that they will understand. It might impact me at work, too, because I don't want them knowing that I'll be taking a lot of time off for treatments. As a result, we suffer in silence. I don't know if this is making it harder for us, but we are both having a really hard time. Any suggestions would be greatly appreciated. Any thoughts on that, Dr. Doga? Well, you know, um, it it certainly is... um, you know, it kind of illustrates what we've been talking about. And my only suggestion at this point in time is um, is that, you know, it, it is if she doesn't have a confidant, that she can really talk about her, um, you know, the, the grief, the experience they're having about this loss, the difficulty, the way it's affecting their relationship, um, then I would strongly suggest that she might want to go find a counselor who specializes in infertility or specializes in grief, um, to really address those issues. You know, these are, are very normal struggles. Um, you know, children have a lot of meaning to us. Um, you know, symbolically, as you said, it's, it's a dream. You know, I always tell my class, many of us have have chosen names for our children when we're children ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, we may That's change so those names, but we we often think about, you know, um, you know how many children I'm going to have and, and what do I want them to be and, um, and so there really are a lot of losses and a lot of issues, and um, and and when 
families are struggling with infertility. There may be a lot of tension. And, you know, and sometimes we get counseling on the uh, on the, the medical aspects of infertility, but we really may need counseling on the psychological aspects of infertility as well. Yeah, I I would agree wholeheartedly. We do have resources at Creating a Family on how to find a uh, therapist that specializes in uh, infertility uh, because I think it's helpful to have somebody who has a clue. Uh, you are listening to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and infertility. Uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, coming to terms with infertility grief. We primarily keep in touch with our audience through our twice-weekly e-newsletter. We, would, we let you know about the latest developments in infertility and adoption, as well as the upcoming week's blog and show topic. Please sign up for our weekly newsletter at creatingafamily.org. It's on the top left-hand side, I believe. Um, one of the things that we hear a lot about, we run an online support group, and one of the things we hear a lot about from people who are struggling with infertility is uh, what I think of as triggering events of sadness caused by things such as um, the the pregnancy of a good friend or a family member, uh, attending a baby shower, even just receiving the invitations to a baby shower. And quite frankly, what's relevant this week, and we're hearing about it quite a bit, is you know going to family uh, functions such as Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, it uh, it tends to uh, make your childlessness even more painful. Uh, and, and how do people, what do you suggest for these type of events uh, that you, for whatever reason, do trigger? Uh, yeah. And yet well, you don't particularly well, want I, to remove think, yourself from life. Yeah, and I, and I think that's, um, you know, that's, uh, again, what I want to do is validate how normal that is. You know, when, if you remember what I talked about earlier, I talked about how, you know, how certain events that take place even years after a loss can trigger grief. Um, and, you know, so for instance, it may be that, you know, that your dad died 20 years ago and now you're walking down the aisle and, you know, and, um, and no matter who's holding your arm, whether it's a brother or a grandfather or an uncle or your, or your mother or somebody else, um, you're still feeling the loss of your father very profoundly at that moment. And I, and I think the same thing happens when you're struggling with infertility. All of these become triggers to grief. Uh, you know, the baby showers, the birth announcements, the invitations, and even going to a Thanksgiving dinner or a holiday dinner where, um, you know, where you're seeing lots of kids running around and, and people inevitably turn to you and say, well, you know, what about you? When are you going to have kids? When are you going to start your family? Um, and, you know, can can be extraordinarily painful. What I always tell people to do in those situations is to, first of all, really kind of choose, you know, what are the events I want to, you know, first of all, to validate your grief, to recognize these are triggers. Um, and um, and then a second thing is, is to make choices of, of what's really healthy for you. Um, and then third, I think it's useful uh, to have um, responses, you know, uh, to, the, to the painful questions that you may get asked. And, um, you know, almost so, you know, you, you so you can respond. Erin Lynn does something with insensitive questions about grief. And what she says is always do it in, in with three things. In other words, why does the question hurt? And the question hurts 
Like, you know, like when are you going to have a family? Because the answer is you don't know. You're trying very hard. It's it's something you've wished for. Um, and so it, it really accentuates your grief. And then I think the second question she asked is, is why do people ask that? And most of the time in situations like that in grief, they don't do it particularly to hurt. Um, you know, they do it out of curiosity. They do it out of support. They do it out of making conversation. And then she says, you know, uh, think about how you might answer those questions, you know, and um, and and sometimes in an educative role. Um, you know, we're not sure when we're having a family, but, um, you know, you'll be the first to know or we'll let you know or something like that when, 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 when that's going to come about. It may be a, a deflective question, um, again, depending on the relationship, depending on the honesty, uh, you may answer it more confrontingly. But, um, um, but again, you know, sort of uh, I, I think the, the two main lessons I'm trying to bring out are, are choose where you want to be and then be prepared when you're there. Uh, along those lines, we have done a number of uh, uh, top ten to, uh, top ten answers. We've done both a uh, <laughs> when are you going to have kids. We've done both a, a real version, and we've also done a snarky version. And I must okay. say, we've had great time <laughs> with the uh, PG-13 rated snarky version. Uh, not that I'm encouraging people to actually use the snarky responses. Yeah. But and, and there could be a third response, which is just deflecting, you know. Yeah. We don't know yeah. yet, but you'll be the first we'll tell. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's the uh that's that's one of the uh one of the real ones as opposed to the snarky <laughs> as opposed to the snarky ones. Uh, again just to I'd love uh, to hear the snarky ones. <laughs> yeah, well, um I have to bo- a couple of them are probably uh <laughs> not appropriate for uh, for radio, but some are. I would have to try to remember some. I tell you what, I'll send you the I tell you, for everybody listening, I will post again uh the uh the the snarky answers. Uh they came up our our community, our online community came up with them and they uh we had a huge response and everybody had a ball coming up with uh, uh of their own and uh, yeah, you know, and, little... and that's healthy too because it 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 it's a way to get out some of the anger and resentment that these kinds of questions sometimes generate. So it's, even you know, if you don't say them, the thinking them might be fun. Exactly, and I think you are exactly right. Thinking them is fun, and and then it, and you also feel the sense of being understood because the other people who are submitting them get it, and you know, and that raises a a, a point that. It's something I think a lot about because I, I I do moderate an online support group, and it seems to me that in that there's a lot bad about uh, about the internet, and there's a lot bad about uh, not bad, but it's a lot lacking in many ways about support groups that are exclusively online. But for many people, it is one of the best ways of finding sub- a supportive network of people who are going through what you're going through or have been through what you are going through and they get it. Have you seen that in that that uh in other areas of disenfranchised grief, uh both well and including infertility, um, that the advent of of online support has made it easier for people in diverse locations to draw together. Is it to find Oh yeah, I, I I you know, I think um that's one of the great advantages of the internet is that it it does allow for communities of of like-minded people to get together um and and to find support and to um and and to reach people who also may like the anonymity that the internet accords 
you know, Absolutely. of course, as you go into that, also recognize, you know, you know, and it, the other thing about the internet that's very useful is it allows what we call dosing. And in other words, if you go to a support group um, and you're sitting around with with other people, there may come a point where you feel overwhelmed, and and you know, and part of you wants to escape, and the other part thinks, well, it's really not fair. But in the internet, you kind of have that freedom to sort of. Uh, read as, as as much as you want until it becomes painful or to stay in a chat room as long as you want. So it allows that dosing. You know, of course, the danger is um, that when you're on the Internet, you, you want to be aware of, of, you know, that the anonymity also allows for, uh, especially in, a, in an unregulated site, um, for, you know, sometimes false information to be shared, sometimes exploitive information to be shared, and sometimes, uh, you know, uh, for for people to make hurtful comments. So, you know, as long as you are aware of the dangers, I think the Internet can be uh, an incredible place for for uh, information and support. It doesn't take the, pe- the place uh, of in-person support, but often in the areas of infertility and sometimes with adoption, I and mean, quite frankly with adoption as well, uh, people outside of the very large metropolitan areas don't have the option of an in-person support uh, support group. Um, yeah. And it, that's hard for people who live in a metropolitan area to, to realize is that there is, as are, there are, and even, quite frankly, um, many of the in-person support groups uh, struggle. They struggle because they're usually started with a, by a single person, and when that person either moves on or just is weary of the role, um, it, it tends to flounder. So uh, there are some wonderful exceptions to that, but I think that it's um, it, it certainly is a it can be a um, uh, an ongoing problem. Uh, you're listening today to Creating a Family, and we're talking about coming to terms with infertility grief. Uh, speaking of, actually, a great segue here, that Creating a Family has the largest infertility and adoption communities on the social network, and we would love to have you join us. On Twitter, you can connect at, at Creating a Family. That's the uh, word on Facebook, I mean, the name. On Facebook, there are three different ways. One, you can like the Creating a Family Facebook page. You can also join the Creating a Family Facebook support group, which I was just mentioning. It is a closed group. Uh, however, if you request to, to um, uh, admittance, uh, I will see that and we will uh, we will let you join us. We would love to have you join us. You can also connect with me individually, dawn.davenport1. The easiest way to find either the Facebook page or the group would be to type in the words creating a family in the Facebook search box. Uh, another question we sometimes get is the different, uh, surrounds the different ways that males and females grieve in general and grieve infertility loss. Uh, it can sometimes uh, cause problems in relationships. You have written some on the different ways that men and women grieve. How do you see it play out in the area of infertility or other uh, ambiguous losses? I mean, our uh, disenfranchised grief. Yeah, uh, well, let, let me make one comment there, in that what the, you're referring to the work that Terry Martin and I have done on grieving styles. Right. And one of the we we've started, you know, we started to do was to look at how men and women grieve differently. And what we realized is, you know, that, that the answer to that is, unsurprisingly, more subtle and complex. That um, that so what we ended up doing was sort of moving away from gender to some degree, and talking about um, 
talking about what we call grieving styles. Now, we see these grieving styles as related to gender, but not necessarily determined by gender. So, I'm so glad you know, to hear we, that. Yeah. So we, we see these grieving styles on a continuum. And one grieving style is more um, affectively oriented. People, when they experience grief, they tend to describe it as, as emotion. Their way of expressing it mirrors that. They cry. They, they get angry. And what usually helps is, um, is um, you know, is, is working through those feelings, exploring and working through those feelings. On the other end of the continuum are grievers that we call instrumental, who are much more apt to experience their grief cognitively or physical, physically and likely to do their grief. Now, there are people in the middle who are blended, and then there's another type of grieving style we call dissonant. Um, certainly many men may have uh, uh, an instrumental style uh, on, the, on the instrumental end of the continuum, but you'll see it work both ways. And, and the problems, of course, become when, let's say, um, you have one partner, let's say the woman, but it doesn't have to be, who's really just, you know, experiencing tremendous emotion that's almost at this point in time that has to be worked through and that's almost... Um, disempowering uh, or disabling, you know that they're 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 working, they're experiencing some intense sadness, maybe depression, um, and then you have uh, another partner in the relationship who wants to deal with it by constantly problem solving. Let's do this. Let's try that. Um, you know that's their way of dealing with grief. Let's consider this option. So again, it helps to be what I would say, aware of how you approach and how you cope with grief. And I would say cope with life, really, um, that these styles are uh, are evident in other ways we cope with crisis. Um, and to understand that, you know, that your way of experiencing it may not be the same as your partner's way of experiencing that. And also to understand, it seems to me, that one way is not necessarily the better way. No, no, we, we, you know, we really make that point because, again, you know, in the culture of counseling, we often look at the person who's, um, who's able to express and experience emotion as being, you know, the most desirable client. And, uh, you know, and, and, and there, there are differences. They're not deficiencies. Yeah, that's a, um, yeah, I think that it's, it's easier to uh, help somebody who is, actively describing and talking about and wants to talk about their feelings but yeah but yeah, for the yeah. person who is 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 the uh strong silent type it's um yeah it feels like you're um not being able to be uh, effective in your helping um another uh associated with infertility is also the issue of miscarriage uh the inability to carry a child to term and i think in our our society seems to understand the grief associated with a late pregnancy loss, a stillbirth, but fails to grasp the grief over early pregnancy loss. And people uh, on our groups and in and, and other places report being told by others, you know, how common it is to have a miscarriage, you'll have better luck next time, and on and on, and not fully grasping all the work and, and, and dollars and fertility treatment and time that went into getting this one pregnancy test. Is it the role of the person suffering the loss to try to educate others in order to get more sympathetic response, or should they just accept what feels like a very callous comment? 
Well, uh, again, I would go back to what Aaron Lynn would would say is um, is that you know that's that's a that's a choice you can make if you really feel you want to you want to educate um, you know so the person says to you well you know just you know go back and try again and you can say you know um, eventually we're going to plan to but this has been very difficult for us and it's really um, it, it, this loss really hurt us you know so it depends on how much you want to do that. My my sense is that we're much better on perinatal loss than we used to be, um, particularly late in pregnancy. But you know, you can uh, even even sometimes earlier. But where we're not good is we focus only on the mothers, and pregnancy loss um, affects the entire family. Um, you know, and I think we have to acknowledge that that husbands will also experience grief over pregnancy loss, and siblings will, and you know, and anybody in the family system might. That's a very good point. Um, yeah, and I, I do, and I think we're better at late-term uh, losses versus early-term losses. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's been some pioneering work that was done by by lots of people for about 40 years. When you know, uh, when I first started in the field, pregnancy loss was almost totally negated and 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 totally disenfranchised. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. I guess something to be thankful for. Yeah, I mean, you All can right. almost cite when Mark started putting out cards. You know. Yeah. Yeah, um, that's true. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. Good point. Uh, well, there's actually a, a, a dissertation on that about you know how different grief has been recognized using the Hallmark catalog. Yeah, because how Hallmark recognizes and 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 uh, a, a, a approaches grief, and and so what? Yeah, that's what yeah. the the ultimate uh, definer of what is a disenfranchised loss. Is there a Hallmark card for it? No. Well, then that's a pretty darn disenfranchised loss. And yeah. that was a, a dissertation that came out, which was quite good. Yeah, I bet it was. Uh, I'd like now to move into an area that uh, it is an, a way that infertility grief lives on, and I see it, and I know Chris sees it, and that is how the inf- how infertility grief interferes with or, or plays out um, in the adoption world. Uh, not everyone who is infertile chooses to move to adoption, but many people who are infertile who have not been successful with treatment do move to adoption. I should also add that, that there are uh, a number, many people who adopt who have not experienced infertility, but again, if we're talking in generalities, I think the generalities would hold that uh, many people who are now adoptive parents have also it's, have also suffered through infertility. I'm going to start with a question from Elizabeth and then uh, and, and open up uh, uh, a discussion um, about how infertility loss uh, affects adoption and adoptive parents and adoptive parenting. Elizabeth writes, I am a mom through adoption to two beautiful kids that I adore. I struggled for eight years with infertility and the slow adoption process. I feel like I should be the happiest person in the world, and yet I still struggle with feelings of loss, jealousy, and others' pregnancies, and my longing to be a, and my longing to be pregnant. I thought adoption would cure me of all these feelings. I'd love to hear what your guests have to say about this. And God bless you in creating a family for what you do. You have been a ray of understanding and information in this long, long journey. Thank you, Elizabeth. Um, Chris, I, uh, uh, how, how common is it, do you find, for people to be surprised that adoption has not, as she said, uh, cured, and she did put it, I should say, in quotes, uh, cured uh, 
uh, her uh, infertility grief? I think we do find it uh, fairly commonly, Dawn, but I think also we try very hard in that pre-adoption education to start to prepare families for that and to really talk about the losses and how they grieve them. And it's so important to to mark that and to acknowledge that loss because until we acknowledge that there's a loss, we can't move through coming to that point of reconciliation or adaptation, to quote um, Dr. Warden, who's another one of my heroes in, in this whole area. You have to come to that place of acknowledging it's a loss, and so often families do come into adoption with the idea that this will cure that feeling of loss, when in fact there are losses that it doesn't come anywhere near, that experience of pregnancy, that dreamed of child, the child who will look like me or have similarities to me, um, As one mom said to me, I'll never have the experience of having given birth and being wheeled out of the hospital with that baby in my arms. And there's even that loss of those, even if you adopt a newborn and that baby's placed with you at the hospital, there's still that loss of those first months. And again, the loss of not only the pregnancy, but the child's history and control over that. So there's myriad losses that are involved that unless we talk them through and give voice to them and and to go to what Dr. Doka was talking about, validate those those are losses. Mm-hmm. And we we allow the ability to talk through them, then we kind of shove them aside and think it'll it's all going to be okay. But again, I think giving voice to that is so important. You know, one of the things that I often speak to is the need, something that I see lacking in in many in many ways through the infertility treatment, the whole journey, or what I call the escalator, the treatment escalator, is that need for a pause. Um, to do exactly what you say, uh, uh, the need for a pause to be able to lick your wounds, so to speak, or to acknowledge, as, uh, to to acknowledge, especially I think this is the case when we move to either um, uh, donor eggs, donor sperm, donor embryo, or adoption into non-genetic parenting. Um, the adoption process inherently gives us with good with when we when we're experiencing good pre-adoption education um what part of that is doing exactly what you're saying Chris and that is helping uh helping people and couples women and couples come to terms with that but when the move goes to towards donor gametes egg or sperm the it's not inherent uh there are many infertility clinics that immediately well all right, you've had your second IVF with your own egg fail. You know, let's go ahead and let's let's do donor egg in the next next cycle. There may be nothing more than you know, simply a month or two months, depending on the people's finances, before they then move into non-genetic parenting. Uh, Dr. Doka, I was wondering if you can, do you see that there is a need before one? But before one was to move, this may be a little out of your area of expertise because it is a more specific to infertility, but before one moves to third-party reproduction through 
uh, donor egg, donor sperm, surrogacy, or donor embryo. Um, is there a need to take pause, take stock, and say, okay, let me sit for a moment and uh, and grieve that my genetic child, as as Chris said, my my dream child, my dreamed of child. Yeah, you know, and again, I, I think that would depend on the client, but I, I think that obviously at each step, um, it, it's good to reflect on, you know, where you've been before, before you take, that's just good counseling to me, um, before you, you know, you start moving to the next step. And and if there are, if there is a sense of loss, and, and many people there, there might be, um, to explore what you're hoping to gain from this, what you see is different. Yeah, I, I would think that counseling here, um, and and you know that that allows you to take stock, or or even you know, if you're able to sort of do this with your own reflective self awareness, would be a very important process. Yeah, and and I, I should say that there are many clinics who do just that. They ask you to see uh, a counselor, and they, usually this person is trained in infertility before moving to donor gametes or donor embryo. So I, I do think that there, are, there is certainly a recognition, uh, at least by some, in the infertility field. All right, we have another question that I'd like to read. This person has asked for me not to use their name. Uh, it is a woman. She says, I hate to admit this, but right now I don't really like my child. We adopted him four months ago, and he is very colicky and cries, colicky and cries frequently. I find myself thinking that if he had been born to me, he wouldn't act like this. My grief over my inability to carry a baby to term and inability to afford more advanced treatments like surrogacy has really hit me the last couple of weeks. I am too ashamed to admit this to anyone, although I hinted at it on the Creating a Family group. Uh, The responses were helpful. I feel like such a freak and a total failure. Chris, what would you say to uh, to this mom? She's adopted, uh, this is her first child, uh, and he's four months old, and she adopted him at birth. And she's really being laid low right now with uh, a new wave of grief, partly brought on by the fact that this child is is, is a fussy baby. You know, Dawn, Dr. Karen Foley's done some wonderful research on this idea of depression after adoption. Her book is Post-Adoption Blues, And so much of that sense of depression and sense of sadness and being overwhelmed relates to the unmet expectations. And any new parent starts the journey of parenting with expectations and ideas and and thoughts of what the future is going to be. We have this picture, and it's often very rosy, and when there's a dissonance with that expectation moms can moms and dads both are at risk to have a sense of depression and and that's certainly one thing I'd be suspicious of here and it's just that unmet expectation but families who go through the adoption process go through a laborious process in the home study and they work very hard to convince their worker that we're going to be great parents and talk about cognitive dissonance. So I've been telling everybody I'll be a great parent. This is what I've wanted. Oh, my gosh, my expectation. This isn't what I thought it would be. And then I start beating up on myself. And, again, 
I think so often families, when they do experience a dissonance with their expectation, don't dare talk to anybody about that. And so even that loss of their their dream and, and their idea of how it would be becomes a loss that's disenfranchised in many ways. And I want to be conscious of not, you know, making everything a significant loss, but I think for that new parent, that's that's a huge issue, or that can be a huge issue, and they don't tend to reach out. So for that mom, I would encourage her to find someone she trusts, whether it's a counselor, whether it's her worker, her agency should be there ready to step up and say, let's get you some supports. And by the way, exhaustion doesn't help with a sense of depression either. So getting <laughs> yeah, some supports point. in place can be huge. But it's not abnormal, and I want to I want to normalize that. And I think sometimes normalizing it is so powerful. Uh, I would also encourage um, people who are feeling thoughts that they feel no one else has ever felt, um, at least on our group and I suspect on other groups, it is uh, possible to submit your questions uh, to me either through uh, the easiest way is through the Facebook uh, message system and ask that they be posted anonymously if that's would give you great, greater freedom to express your feelings. Uh, many people do this, and when they do, they find out that what they're feeling, they're not the only ones who have felt that. Other people have felt that. They have gotten past it. They have uh, come to the place where uh, they now love their children and, and, and feel very competent as parents. Um, or they're in the middle of it right now, and sometimes you know, uh, uh, sharing uh, the moment when you're in it with others who are in the, in the moment uh, can also be helpful. So there are, uh, if it, there are definitely ways that you can reach out and and, and get some help. I, let me also say that we have interviewed the uh, the book is Post Adoption Blues. We have interviewed uh, her on the Creating a Family show, and you can uh, access that at our website. It was a great interview, and I recommend that you do. Um, we've talked about this is one way that. Uh, uh, and I, I think you're probably right that there's certainly a, an issue of depression that might be playing out here. Um, how else, uh, Chris, have you seen the infertility raise the, the grief, infertility grief, circle back and, and raise itself, and, and, and somehow influence the adoption uh, or the adoptive parent and child relationship? I've, we certainly see it early on. And we see that, that new parent, the mom or the dad or both of them, who have that overwhelming sadness, and they may not even realize why they're feeling sad. This is something they've worked for and wanted. And, in fact, they may not have the social support because this is what they've worked for and wanted. So we see it early on, and that parent who's, either feeling blue or even to the point of depression, can't start to engage with that baby and that child in a way that builds those bonds of attachment. Mm -hmm. So we see it can interfere early, but even the parent who never really comes to that point of reconciliation, that 
I'm going to parent this child who was not born to me, but this is my child, and I'm going to bond and attach that parent who's never gotten there, still is tr- it has this expectation of who that child will be and what they'll act like and how they'll behave. And again, we, we get dissonance sometimes between what, how can you be like this? This isn't how you're supposed to be. And we don't necessarily say that out loud, but that feeling is pervasive that this is not what I expected of my child. And that can block that parent's ability to attach to the child. And finally, it's so not fair to a child to have to live up to this dreamed of child that they know nothing about. Um, And even if they did, we want to accept children for who they are. So if I'm still holding on to some of that, those losses or that, the fantasy child and expecting somehow my child is going to meet that, that's just not fair to that that child. Uh, yeah, amen. Um, and although it does happen, it's important to realize that it certainly does happen with parents who have children by biology as well. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, in in some ways, it's you feel less disloyal in that sense than you do, and you have with it in in the adoption situation, you have an easy thing to point to. It would this would not this would not be happening if uh, this child has had my genes. If this child was a child I had been dreaming of, um, we did an, and you uh, can be much more forgiving of that child who's yours biologically. It it would appear from the families I've worked with. That's interesting, yeah, and I, I, I think you're probably right that that would, yeah, I, I, that's interesting. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. I think, and it just so isn't fair to a child. Uh, and I often wonder that, especially uh, with when young children have been adopted, well, and older children as well, that when we are focusing on the child's attachment, one of our recurring themes here at Creating a Family is that attachment is a two-way street. It's not just the child that has to attach. It's also the parent that has to attach. And I like the thought that it's the unmet expectation. It's, it's important to be aware of what our expectations were, so that we can realize that part of of our issue is an unmet expectation. I think that well, maybe I should put that in a question format. I suppose so. If unmet expectations, if if, if um, our uh, commenter, our questioner. If part of the issue is her, what her dreams had been like, uh, and and this is a uh, a disconnect from from what she imagined, um, how can she? What are some ways to help move past this into a place where she can more fully appreciate this child for whom he is? And Chris, I'm sorry, I'm breaking that to you. I apologize. No, no problem. I think it goes back to either with a counselor or through self-reflection, but really getting in touch with and acknowledging what were those losses. Because when we start to say, what did I lose with this? I, I know what I gained, but but there was another side to the coin. What did I lose? And I start to look at what those were, and I can start to frame them either verbally or um, even in thinking through them, through my my thoughts, I start to think about what my losses were, and then I can start to think, well, how was 
how did that impact what I expected this would be like? And when we know, wow, I expected it would be all smiles and laughter and great, and it wasn't like that, but this is real life. I think it's easier to then get in touch with, but but what is real life? You know, we talk about with marriage, the end of the emotional honeymoon. (laughs) We usually have thought through, well, it's not always going to be the honeymoon. And we have a certain tolerance for that. And it's kind of doing that with what our expectations were of parenting. Yeah, and and sometimes I think it just helps to, uh, you know, the conversations we have with with a variety of parents, as, as you say, I think almost every parent, goes through that at some point in time. This was, um, you know, uh, um, you know, because we all have these expectations of being perfect parents with perfect kids. Yeah, exactly. And that good combination that both we were going to be perfect and our kids would be, um, if not perfect, at least easier than they are. Right. <laughs> you know, I've noticed that we have, uh, uh, that I use the word resolve and, and Dr. Doko, you had said you dislike the word resolve, and so do I, uh, because resolve makes it seem like it's a package that you tie up and you put, you know, you, you finish yeah. it all up, tie it up, put it up on the shelf, and and be done with it. And I noticed that when Chris was talking, she talked about the word adapt to. So I, I what I'd like to focus on now is what are some ways that people can whatever the term we want to use, come to terms with, uh, resolve, which we don't particularly like, adapt to, uh, move along with, incorporate into, whatever the correct, uh, whatever term you want to use, a grief that, uh, that, that people, that, that our society doesn't recognize, that we may not have given ourselves permission to recognize. Uh, and in particular, what I'm asking is some ways that people can, some steps that people can take for those who are moving into uh, adoption or uh, non-genetic parenting, um, so that we are in a better place to to, to not do as Chris says, it's it's so unfair to the to the child uh, for us not to have worked this through. Uh, Dr. Doka, I'd like to start with you on that, and then Chris, please chime in as well. Okay, and 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 I think it's it's in some ways a very hard question because I think. With every couple, the answer may be different. But the questions I think I would ask in counseling is, you know, is what are some of the, you know, as, as you move, you know, to, to really do some work with them on, on, on what they, you know, uh, on what they felt they've let go in this process, what they feel they're, they're gaining in this process. Uh, I'd like to review the decisions that they've made and, and any reactions, thoughts, emotions attached to those. Um, certainly, I would say, you know, if there's a lot that's going on and this was a very difficult decision, wrought with conflicting thoughts, wrought with conflicting emotions, is there anything we need to do? Um, is there, um, you know, you know, I, I once did a ritual where people sort of, um, you know, um, um, almost had a mourning ritual, a, a funeral for their, uh, with a few close friends, you know, a, a ritual where they said, okay, we're we're mourning the fact that we cannot do this, and then you know, and 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 we need to acknowledge that, and we need to recognize that, and we need to get support from the people who could support us, and then we're ready to move on, um, and to and to and to go with with uh, and to explore other alternatives. So I, I think it really is, 
uh, a kind of mourning process. And um, you cited Bill Warden, who's also one of my favorite people um, in in terms of his work. And, and, you know, to really acknowledge that that grieving involves a whole number of tasks. And, and it's acknowledging the loss. It's dealing with the emotions. It's adjusting to a life in face of the, the loss. It's, it's dealing with any spiritual issues associated with that. And, and then it's saying, okay, and, and how do I fit this in as I continue with my life? Uh, how do I relocate that loss? How do I make adjustments? So it really is allowing people to go through a mourning process um, as, as they move on to the next area. I think the importance of ritual is wonderful. We did a show with uh, Carol Lieber Wilkins uh, this summer, Coping with Infertility Grief After Adopting, and she talked about the need for ritualizing. Um, the, the, perhaps not a funeral per se, but, but she suggested a beautiful ritual where you would write a letter um, to or your the child, your dreamed-of child, um, and then set that letter free. Or, and, and I certainly heard of people planting a tree or doing something, but somehow doing something concrete, um, communally if possible, uh, is powerful. And uh, actually, after that show, uh, somebody from uh, had heard the show and uh, and did the ritual, and it was so powerful. And she wrote about it in such a really beautiful way. Uh, and uh, it, uh, I uh, linked to her blog, um, so you can find my go back at the Creating a Family Group. I uh, believe, yeah, it was, that's where I linked to it. It was just beautiful, um, and, and it helped her. Uh, and I hope she and 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 her husband um, be, be moving move past that uh, uh, the intensity of the grief. Chris, what about you? Any thoughts on on what we can do there with? Uh, to help us adapt better and become better parents to the children who are our real kids, not the our dreamed of children. Right. Well, and I think certainly everything Dr. Doka said and really exploring what the loss means. You know, what what am I losing? And you may not have all of it. And I there are triggers and and other things will make you think of it. It doesn't mean you haven't worked through, but there will always be triggers. And I think Dr. Doka talked about that earlier, that memory of I wish someone was here. So acknowledging the losses, giving voice to them, journaling if you're a journaler. But I, I want to echo the importance of ritual because it marks the transition. It says this matters. And I think that's such a powerful and important message. And we talk about rituals when there's an adaptive placement, and it's the same concept. It's so important to both that birth family, the placing family, and the adopting family to have a ritual that marks the transition and says, this is important stuff. And so that birth family is entrusting their child to the love and the care of the adoptive family. And that's very entitling and empowering for that adoptive family as well. But again, it's the importance of ritual. So finding ways to to have ritual, finding, accepting the uh, intense emotions, whatever that might be. And 
they're different for different people and different with different losses. So acknowledging the emotions and eventually the energy you're putting into it dissipates and you get to that point where you can move forward to the next step and come to that place of adaptation or reconciliation with the loss, which doesn't mean it wasn't a loss. It just means I've put that in a place, I've redefined myself, and I can move to another place. The uh, Chris, I'm going to give you our last question, and, and, and maybe an unfair one to end on because it's, it's rather open-ended, <laughs> but, you know, you're up for it. Uh, the uh, How do we know when your grief is still too raw that you shouldn't move on to either to adoption that you're really uh, and I know this is one that that as as both a counselor and a social worker it's heartbreaking because you don't want to be you don't want to have to acknowledge that but but how do we know when it's time when, when it really isn't that you're really not ready I think when that family is still or that person is still in experiencing intense emotion consistently they're preoccupy their thoughts or they're finding they're triggered almost continually something is making them think of the loss or bringing out the emotions any of those intense reactions to loss say to me they're not moving through grieving process to the point where they can redefine themselves, put that loss in a special part and place in their heart and and move forward. So I'd be looking at the intensity of emotion and the frequency of the intense emotions. All right. So that you kind of in general it would be that it's the degree that type of that you would be looking at. Okay. Yeah, well I think I would, that, go ahead, Doctor Doka, please. I would just add, you know, is is their grief really disabling them? Is it really inhibiting them from um, from functioning in key roles? Okay, that's yeah. So, so again, looking at the the effect of the grief as well as the intent the intensity, and being yeah. honest with yourself uh, that which is of course hard because people at this point have reached it where they're at the point where they just want a child. Give me a child. That's what I want. And and giving them permission that yes that may be coming, but right now honor honor where you're at before uh, before you take the next step, as hard as it might well be. But Don, that's like a to... wonderful term. Honor where you're at. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to take a moment to thank a few more of our gold sponsors and to remind you that it is through their generous support that we can bring you this show and all the resources at Creating a Family. We have Fairfax Cryobank. Fairfax has been a leader in sperm donation for over 20 years and is dedicated to supplying updated, verified, and accurate medical and personal information on their donors. We also have Children's Connection. They're an adoption agency with offices throughout Texas providing domestic infant adoption, embryo donation adoption, home studies, and post-adoption support to families throughout the United States and independent adoption centers whose mission is whose mission is to provide open adoption placement and counseling to birth and adoptive families. They work with families in all 50 states. Let me take just a quick moment to thank you both for being our guest today on Creating a Family. I am, I'm sure that people are going to want more information. 
on each of you. And let's see, I've uh, I had your both of your websites popped up, and I did. Uh, Dr. Doka, could you give us? I think it's drkendoka.com. Is that it? Yeah, www.drkendoka.com. One word. And Chris, for at uh, Bethany, I've actually now pulled it up here. It's uh, you can reach Chris at uh, Bethany, which is Bethany dot org, a very easy one to remember. And I and thank you, Dr. Doka, for saying yours. Thank you again for being my guest today. This is a topic of such importance uh, and of, of real relevance to our audience. And to the audience, let me say thanks for joining us, and I will see you next week. And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right. Save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations.